G'day, and welcome to the AHDC podcast series, Health Design on the Go. I'm your host, David Cummins, and today we'll be speaking to Jane Carthy, who has a never-ending CV, including being a health architect, health facility planner, PhD graduate, and founder of the AHDC Council, and is currently a judge in the UIA Public Health Group Student Design Competition. In Jane's 40-year career, Jane has worked across Australia, around the world, and worked in the Asia-Pacific region, including East Timor and New Zealand. The AHDC was founded in 2011 by Jane and is now a global beacon in best practice and education for the Australian health design industry and the world. Welcome, Jane. Thank you for your time to be here. Thank you, David. That's a very big introduction, even though it has been a 40-year career. I certainly know other people who have been in the industry for over 40 years and certainly don't have a CV as long as yours. I suppose my first question to you would be, what has motivated you to achieve so many things in your career? A good question. I think I was always somewhat bored with just being an architect, so I wanted to give stuff back in the academic sphere as well. And I got very interested in health design early on and connected with a lot of people overseas because I was director of the Centre for Health Assets Australasia at University of New South Wales. And so I realised there was a very international global perspective that we could bring to the topic. And I founded the Health Design Council when I left the university as a way of continuing that way of disseminating information to industry and academia and other people interested in the field. Yeah, it's a very interesting take on our career or our industry, should I say, because there actually isn't that much research when you compare it to someone like the medical profession, which is everything is about evidence-based research. So I think what you've really done is, you know, allowed for best practice to have what does the research say instead of what traditionally was, what does and doesn't work on site and in design and on site and in the hospitals. I think there's two things you have to appreciate here. The medical field, there's so much bigger than the field of architecture. If you look at the number of medical practitioners compared to architects in this country, I think there's about 6,000 architects. Who knows how many medical people there are. There's a much greater tradition in medicine for research underpinning practice than there ever has been in architecture, although there has been some. Architecture has been regarded as art in some ways rather than a science, but I, as a practitioner, I've always been very aware of the crossover between the two. It's not one or the other. There is an element of black box thinking where, you know, you put stuff in from research and everything you know, and then something else comes out. The connection is not always that obvious, whereas maybe in medicine it's more obvious, but I don't actually think even medicine is totally evidence-based either. Yeah, we definitely taught at university architects have probably got the most powerful brain as an industry leader in the sense that you do have to balance the wise mind and the emotive mind and the creative mind in parallel, the logical mind, the medicine mind and the research mind. So to be using both parts of your brain at one point in time is a very, very unique gift. Looking back at 40 years ago, when you did start your architecture profession, what was it like back then for the world of health education and health design as opposed to just general architecture, which still exists today, but not certainly as much as it used to? Well, to be honest, 40 years ago, I was starting out. And so I was a general architect. I did a lot of stuff before I ended up doing health, everything from office buildings to schools, to banks, to 
clean laboratories and, and all the rest of it and slowly narrowed it down to becoming an expert. I don't think there was anything like the interest in health design that there is today. Even today, health buildings can be regarded as very pragmatic and kind of boring for most architects. I mean, let's face it, they're not a civic centre or an opera house or something like that. They've got defined budgets and sometimes difficult clients. And, you know, you're trying to marry the needs of sick patients with a workforce that wants a very good workplace with a client who doesn't want to spend more money than they have to, but want to stand in front of it to open it in timely manner for political purposes. So it's always an in, it's always been an interesting balancing game between those three things. Everybody says it's not about the building, but in the end, it kind of is because buildings last an awfully long time and the way you design it actually does define to some extent what can be done in it. So you really need to understand that what you're doing is going to define practice for a long time. So making it flexible over time is really useful as well. Yeah, the word flexibility has come up a lot in this podcast series where the the more experienced architects do push for that. There's always been this tension between Flexibility costs money often, not always, but it does. It can cost money, especially if you look at it from a site level where you have some excess room around it so you can easily adapt or build and in, inside as well because it's quite disruptive changing a building after it's been built. So you want to be able to do that with minimum impact. There are lessons that we have learnt and we've looked at hospitals overseas and here. I don't think we're ever going to get it 100% right, but if we can at least build in some flexibility, we're doing better than no flexibility. What else do you think some of the best teachings are from your career in the the last 40 years? I I think one of the things that I've become really clear about, and especially since I did my doctorate, is that everybody has a role and everybody's role is important. I think actually having respect for the skills of others is incredibly important and everybody is trained in their field and they're all professionals. And yet we still come, and I guess it's human nature, we come up in these silos where we kind of look at everybody else's work and go, why is it so hard for them to do the right thing? Keeping in mind your research, what are some of the steps or advice to help people in that situation. Design is a series of compromises in the end. You do the best you can in the really important stuff. You have to prioritise and work through what are the highest priorities and don't always let the person with the loudest voice get their way. So people management skills are really important in design. Yeah, I agree. Do you mind just telling if the people listening today a little bit more about your research and some of the findings? What I found with my research is most people were pretty universally unhappy with the way user groups were run and thought that there were better ways to do things. And they came up with some good ideas for it too. The the traditional way of doing user groups with somebody basically being the ringmaster at the front of the room trying to get everybody to agree can work, but most of the time it doesn't. I think you need to have a lot of work happening off stage with people understanding what's going on and communicating with their with their fellow workers and then coming back to the forum to put their point of view. But I think the basic thing is respecting the roles in a user group, understanding what the building can actually do, what the designer can actually do and what they're being paid to do. And then understanding, you know, even doctors and nurses need to understand each other and the allied health people because quite often you come into a room and they're not always on the same page about what's happening and what needs to be done to address all the issues and to not only to understand to address them and understand the issues, but also to implement them into a design solution that can then come back and be discussed. It's just not realistic most of the time. You know, no wonder. And I got to the point where I understood why users would get annoyed or 
you know, at the process or be unhappy with it because they didn't have enough time and enough explanation of what was going on to understand why my research found that there needs to be a role for a leader of a user group, whether that's the project director or the manager or whoever, in really managing people's expectations of what the process does and what it can achieve. Yeah, I I agree. You've mentioned a few of the challenges that you had in your career in reference to user groups, in reference to the design, in reference to flexibility. What else do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you've had in your career and how you overcame them? There are challenges associated with practice and there are challenges associated with academia. I spent a long time working on health facility guidelines, which was a a fairly frustrating process, again, because of the issues around user group. If you can imagine user groups amplified a thousand or more times, it was a bit like that with seven or eight health departments trying to get them to agree on various things and being the lightning rod in the middle for everybody's discontent and, you know, confusion about what was going on. So that was a major challenge in my research as well about the confusion around, you know, whether they were set in stone or whether they were a good starting point. Often they weren't evidence-based, they were authority-based or experience-based or whatever. So they weren't always accepted very well by users for that reason. And I think that that's a challenge. As we get more research in the field, hopefully we will have more evidence base for a lot of the things that happen in those. I don't think we'll ever have 100% evidence or anything like that. It's just not the kind of way architects work anyway. And I think even the experience overseas from the States and the like where they have the Centre for Health Design and all those people who try to promote it, even they would accept that it's never going to be a, a totally evidence driven field because there's just too many different situations and projects and people and all the rest of it. So that's one challenge, just bringing that whole thing together. Another challenge has been back in practice. Again, as I said, you know, having this reputation of being an academic, you know, you're too academic was the kind of stuff. So you get to write reports or things like that, which is fine. But, you know, I I preferred doing design work and working with users, which I got to do in my last jobs. And I think, you know, COVID certainly brought a challenge with meetings being held online, you know, Zoom meetings with 20 or 30 people. And I think a lot of architects who work through that time will know what I'm talking about, trying to run them from your, your home with kind of dodgy IT and not a terribly great NBN and then you have 20 or 30 people in a room and you're trying to draw and talk and everything all at the same time. It's just exhausting. What do you think some of the highlights have been or the greatest achievements with the AHDC itself? Well, before I give that, I actually want to give some credit to in Forbes who founded a group for health architecture and planning some 20 years earlier and, and really ran it up until the mid-2000s, 2000, 2000, about 2005. He really pioneered this space with a series of lectures and seminars just in New South Wales, though. So the thing that AHDC has done is take it national and also involving New Zealand to some extent, and I think that's been one of its greatest strengths. It took the idea from GAP, G-H-A-A-P or whatever it was, and has taken it. I actually think COVID has been a positive step for AHDC because it's meant we've had to go to the Zoom platform or Google Teams or whatever and do our stuff online, which has meant that we have brought people from around the country together online even more. And we've done it once a month instead of every two months. So I think we've actually upped our offering to our audience. We brought together a really good committee. It started out with me and two other people, both of whom have now gone. And I was determined to keep spreading the information from the guidelines development and the research. But over the years, I mean, Leslie always been around since the beginning, pretty well since the beginning and, you know, people like that. 
And and we've brought newer, younger people in, which has been fantastic. I reckon the biggest advantage has been bringing so many people from different interests and backgrounds together, and it's just continuing to grow with the new sustainability subcommittee and the research scholarship, which is just fantastic, I reckon. It's just such a great initiative. And, you know, all sorts of other stuff we're doing and the potential conference at the end of the year, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in the wildest of my dreams 10 years ago, I wouldn't have seen it being this successful so soon. You know, it's a long, slow slog building up an organisation. You know, we had like 30 members, 40 members for about five years. It was just really frustrating. And then now suddenly we're blossoming and we're getting more members and more input and really good ideas. It used to be me doing everything and I'm really happy not to be doing that anymore. (laughs) Yeah, and I think everyone is so passionate and happy to be part of it as well because everyone is respected and everyone does see the difference and the excitement in the board meetings also the webinars is quite palpable. So I think everyone sees the benefit in it. So what do you think the future of health design looks like? You've had a career in over 40 years of health design and seen what probably not what not to do and also what you can do, but what do you think the future of health design looks like? It's a good question. There's a lot of medical technologies coming on board, you know, imaging stuff and non-invasive surgery and all those innovations. We always respond to them. And so the facility has to accommodate those sorts of things. But we're also tending towards more care in the community and keeping people out of hospitals has been the, the, the goal for a long time. But I think the reality is people always need to go to hospitals. The issue of pandemics is going to be on people's radar now in a way it probably wasn't before so you know issues of infection control and isolation rooms and quarantine and all those kinds of things are going to be front of mind in the design of facilities now I'm going to sit back and watch with a great deal of interest because I don't plan on working for too much longer (laughs) I'm still going to write and do things but I think it's time to hand the baton on to the younger generation who are doing a fantastic job and, and watch what happens. So I'll probably be the user of the health facilities of the future. I just want to say thank you so much for all your effort and time you have put in. As you said, the AHDC at one point was a question mark and you have just pushed through your perseverance and patience and this has been absolutely phenomenal. And me personally, I'm very grateful for the AHDC as I do know a lot of other people are. So thank you very much for for persisting and for for gathering such an amazing team and being such a strong leader in this space. Thanks, David. Nice to chat. You have been listening to the Australian Health Design Council podcast series, Health Design on the Go. If you would like to learn more about the AHDC, please connect with us on our website or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.